Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 170. A big one today, really is. And I say an exciting one and whatnot quite often, but um, I've been pushing this one for a couple of months now uh, and, and quite looking forward to it. Filming with someone across the pond, as they say, but we'll get into that in a wee minute. The last episode we had, 169, was with Tom Scroke. Tom is one of the other Nuffield cohort in uh, my group. And Tom, along with a, another guy, have created a, a company called Soil Benchmark. And what that basically looks to do is bring on clients around the UK, map their soil, and then basically create a comprehensive benchmarking tool for everyone involved and, and further afield. It's quite an interesting one there. The next episode, we have 171 with Laura Audrey. Again, another one of that Nuffield cohort. There's only so many I could be doing. I think there's like four more left. Um, who is, she's from a deer farm in New Zealand and came over here, met her partner, and they started farming. And uh, she's trying to look into Nuffield to see if there's a better market for beef dairy calves. Um, so maybe one for you, it's an interesting one you've been yeah, for sure. uh, quite keen on. Uh, but as I said, today's episode is a big one. I've been pushing uh, the fact that we're going to be interviewing uh, an ex-Liverpool player for those football and, as he will maybe now say, soccer fans uh, out there. It's quite a big one, quite looking forward to that in itself. Um, but that guest today is Stevie Nichols. Stevie, would you like to say hello? Well, do I have to? <laughs> well, no, you don't have to, in fairness. You, you can no, bugger no. off if you want. Hello! <laughs> Uh, yeah. uh, no, pleasure, pleasure to have you. Today. Thank you for your time. Um, uh, looking forward. Good, 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 good. Uh, so I will mention how I've came across um, this gentleman because if, if I don't, it's probably going to sound quite random. How we've, I mean, we do bring some folk on, and you're like, well, how have we done this? But yeah. this is very out there. Uh, I, I know Stevie's twin sister, Susie, very well. So I got in touch with Susie and was like, any chance? Um, this could happen in here a couple of months later. We've got it got it organised. Uh, so looking forward to this one. But Stevie, could you give us give us just give the listeners a wee bit of background as to who you are? Because some sort of diehard football fans, football fans, maybe uh, maybe 10, 20 years older than myself will definitely know right. who you are, but some of the younger ones not. Yeah, a wee bit of background to yourself. Um, well, I grew up in a place called Muirhead in, in Trun, um, which is in the west of Scotland, if you didn't know. Um Went to Muirhead Primary, and then went to Mark College, which primarily was a, a rugby school. Um, so I played rugby and I played uh, football uh, since a kid. The only thing I was interested in was having a ball at my feet. Uh, and kind of, you know, not just football, but, but sport in general. Uh, our whole family, including Susan, that you mentioned, you know, uh, I've got three sisters. Uh, Sandra and Helen and Susie, and I've got two brothers, Ken and Ken and myself, uh, and uh, we're all we're all into sport. We all played different sports. Uh, the girls mainly played hockey. Uh, myself and my two brothers, we all played rugby and football. Uh, well, tell a lie. One of my other brothers play, he thinks football's absolute a waste of time. He's into Grand Prix racing and stuff. Can't understand why anybody would want to sit for an hour and a half and watch a game of football. But uh, he played rugby, and, and as did my other brother, uh, Kim. Uh, Mum and Dad, when they were younger, we were all, you know, my dad was a, was a golfer, and my mother played badminton. So we're kind of, we're all sporting billies, really, to be honest. Um, and so just growing up, it was sport, sport, sport. For me, generally, it was football. Always wanted to kick a ball. Uh, joined a, a team when I was nine called Troon Thistle which I was I was one of the 
the first team that Trinthistle actually had, I was in it. Uh, that's when the club started, when I was nine years of age. Um, and I stayed there until I was 14 and a half, 15. And uh, the one of the bigger teams in the area was Air United. Uh, and they asked me to go and play with their boys club when I was around 15, 15 and a half, nearly 16. Uh, and that was a step up uh, from just local football. Um, and then from there, I signed what was called then an S form, which basically meant that they had first dibs on me. Nobody could come in and ask me to sign for them. They they had first choice. Uh, and at 16, I signed that. Um, and then when I was 18, they offered me professional forms. Uh, but Air United were part-time. So they weren't training every day and then playing it was a training on a Tuesday, training on a Thursday, and playing a Saturday. Um, and I had, I had different jobs in between while I was playing. First job I had was an apprentice electrician. I still can't wire a plug. Uh, <laughs> I was a brickies labourer, probably the worst brickies labourer that ever ever lived. Uh, different other jobs, working in factories, washing walls, just earning to earn a few quid. While I was while I was playing football, um, and then eventually, uh, a little team called Liverpool uh, came to Air United and offered three hundred thousand pound for me, and uh, I went off to Liverpool, uh, and uh, the rest is history, I guess they say. What what year was that in that Liverpool signed you? Uh, it was the end of eighty one, just before Christmas. That that would be quite a substantial figure at that time, would it not? Oh, it was a few quid, still a few quid today. I would, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But in, yeah. in the scheme of yeah, like but... some of the money that they throw about some of them clubs, it's mental now. But back Aye. then, it... yeah, it was good. It was, it was, I mean, it was fantastic money for United. Um, but you know, again, I mean, obviously, they nothing to do with me. It's not. A, it's not a figure that ever crossed my mind. Um, you know, I guess today it's different. You know, if you go somewhere for a hundred million, I guess it puts a little bit more pressure on you. But in terms of affecting me, the the price made no difference to me whatsoever. Uh, so, I'm a, myself. I'm a keen rugby player. I've played rugby for the last twelve years. So just when you mentioned it. I'm always interested when someone plays football and rugby, like I did as well. I played football for five years or so. Why Why was it football instead of rugby for you? Just to interrupt you quickly there, Ed, uh, sorry to cut you off as you chat about rugby and, well, we know we're going to hear it every session anyway. You're a guy that gets up early and is completely committed to fitness. I am, well, not. But I still spend a fair chunk of time being active, whether that's physically or mentally. And one time I really struggle with is that hour or so after work. I find a sort of productivity lull. The reason I say this is my usual solution is have a nap, but we've recently been sent Magic Mind, a productivity shot based on matcha, which naturally releases caffeine over a prolonged period of time, reducing stress from the hit. And I don't need that nap anymore. Quick shot in the morning, and I'm good until about 10pm without a stop. If you're like me, that being slightly overweight and trying to fit as much in a day as you can, check out the Magic Mind website, much like the Kardashians, Joe Rogan and many more have, at www.magicmind.com 
forward slash R-U-K-I-T-C-H-E-N. That's R-U-K-I-T-C-H-E-N. Enter the promo code on the website for 56% off R-U-K-I-T-C-H-E-N 20. Sorry, Steve. Back to why it was football over rugby. Well, there's not a straightforward answer to that, but I will tell you that when I was when I was 14, maybe 15, coming up 15, um, at that time, when you played rugby big time, you played for the, the Hoyts and, and played for Scotland and, and, and that sort of stuff. It wasn't professional, but what it did do was it got you a good job. And me coming from Troon, maybe you'll have heard of the Bruins for Troon, well, we were we were family friends of the Bruins, and obviously Gordon and Peter played for Scotland, and and you know had great jobs. You know, Gordon got a job in the bank. Um, not sure what Peter did, but at the time, playing rugby at the highest level got you a good job. Now, I think it's fair to say academically, I'm uh, at the bottom of the pile because I just wasn't interested. I was only interested in playing football or any other sport. I could, the only reason I went to school was for break time to play football and to play rugby or or badminton or whatever it was we could do at school. That, that was that was me, you know. I just no two bones about it. I wasn't interested. So anyway, at uh, around 14, 15, the, the teachers, certainly the PE teachers, uh, and a guy, a guy called Papa Hardy, who was a, a legend in my college, uh, and the two, the two uh, PE teachers who ran the rugby, um, Mister Gilbert, Mister Sharkey. So they got me in the room and said, "Look, <clears throat> this football was beginning to interfere with your rugby because the football was in the morning as well, um, and of course." By the time I went to, I was thinking about going to Air United and then I had to play in the afternoon, which meant I had to travel, which meant I couldn't play rugby in the morning. And they said to me, look, I, I, we've no idea if you're any good at football, but, you know, our advice would be pack football in uh, and play rugby because, you know, we think you can go all the way uh, and you'll get a good job. And at no stage did it cross my mind to even think about not playing football, and it took me about two seconds to say no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not packing in football, uh, and so I just I, I played rugby when I could, uh, the last, certainly the last year because obviously we we could leave at sixteen when you were at school, and so I played when I could, but generally it was like no, it was just whatever was in me, it just wasn't it wasn't an option to not play football. You know, in my head, the only thing I was ever going to do for the rest of my life was play football. So I can't tell you why. I just know that that's inside me. And it never, ever changed. Never changed. It's it's quite funny. We, I've said this maybe three times now. We've had a few folk that reached an extreme, extreme level in sport. And Rose really said it. And it was quite clear that all she cared about was running. And all you clearly care about is football. And you mentioned, you mentioned Stevie, about a transfer to a small club called Liverpool. Obviously, anyone that knows anything about football knows about Liverpool. And to be honest, anyone that even has a very, very minimal knowledge of, of football yeah. probably is aware of Liverpool. But when you, when you look sort of back on 
the best yeah, I guess, teams. I guess I should probably was. I should probably clean that up. I was being sarcastic. I mean, basically, no, I, know, I, I know, I know. <laughs> but, no, just for other folk, though, you know, basically at the time, Liverpool were arguably the best team on the planet. They were European champions and, as I said, arguably the best team that was on the face of the earth at that time and for a considerable period after it. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, the way I was going to sort of say the question was Real Madrid in the late 50s, Barcelona around the 2010s, AC Milan early 2000s, the clubs that sort of stand out as the team on the planet. In the 80s, when you were signed, as you said, it was Liverpool. So yeah. it was more than just a £300,000 fee, whichever that translates to now. It was more yeah. than just a big move from a sort of local club. It was going to the biggest club in the world. Did that not come? You mentioned there wasn't too much pressure around the, the fee, but did it come with pressure or, or I mean, obviously excitement, but was there pressure on you on the just the magnitude of where you were going? No. <laughs> really? Because, I mean, I, I, I kind of take things in my stride. And either, either it didn't register or I just don't think that much. But, <laughs> you know, I went there and obviously you have all the, th all the thoughts and, you know, you're gone and all the players that are there and the European champions and the whole thing and you're excited. But once you get there, and again, this might sound a little strange, not strange as in the world, but, you know, when I was at United, the dressing room I was in was down to earth, there was a load of experienced guys who looked after the young guys like myself. It was a great atmosphere. We had a good team, and things were smooth. and And there was a there was a a togetherness about it. And when I went to Liverpool, the biggest the biggest thing that hits you when you get there, well, tell a lie, it doesn't hit you till later when you think about it. But it was actually like going from one dressing room into another dressing room that was exactly the same. Even though they were European champions and they were full of what we would call on the outside superstars, the culture was about as down-to-earth as it's possible. I mean, you, you came across as a big-timer at anything. Everybody would come down on you in a ton of bricks. You know, you hear a lot of cliches with people about, you know, the the cleaning lady and the tea ladies are as important as everybody else. Well, at Liverpool, that is absolutely true. Now, everybody knew what the hierarchy was. You know, like all teams, and certainly the best teams, there is a hierarchy. There are some players who are who get paid more and who are probably more important in the whole scheme of things. But inside the dressing room, inside the team, and inside the club, nobody is any more important than the than the next guy. And that includes outside of the dressing room. And that's one of the reasons why they're successful, yeah. They've got great players, but the key is, is that every single player that was there, the focus was on the guy next to you. It wasn't about you doing well. It was about making the guy next to you do well. Because if I make the guy next to me do well... And he's doing the same, and he's doing the same, and he's doing the same. I mean, what a force that is. The only thing you're concerned with is the guy next to you. And so that was the culture. And again, you know, you talk about, we used to, when we talked to the media, 
there'd be three or four of the boys hanging around, A, trying to take the mickey out of you, and B, making sure you didn't come across as a big-timer. Or you didn't say anything about the opposition that was derogatory. It was always, yeah, they're a great team, or he's a great player. Or you, you, you gave nothing away, you told them nothing, and you said the right things. And if you said the wrong thing, which obviously on occasions you do, you know, you're either young or inexperienced or you just slip up, somebody jumps on you, whether it's Ronnie, whether it's the manager, whether it's the other players. So the culture was unbelievable. Unbelievable. And on top of that, it was, by the way, we win. So if there was any pressure, yeah. it was when you weren't winning. You know, turning up every day to training was a joy. You, you couldn't wait to get in. I mean, when I got there, I got wound up. Listen, I was a 19-year-old, wet behind the ears, guy for Troon that played part-time football. I'd hardly been out of Scotland in my life. I think I'd been out once. I think I went to Italy once or something. No, twice France. I went to France <laughs> with the rugby team, the college rugby team. So I was green. So I got wound up totally. And, of course, eventually you learn. But it's all in fun. And again, that's, an, that's another thing. The culture was not picking on it. Anybody, you know, they weren't picking on me. They were winding me up for two reasons. A, because it was fun. And B, because they actually cared about me. You know, if they, if they had no time for you, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, these things wouldn't happen. But the dressing room was full of good people, but great players. And everybody was thinking the right the same way. And the coaching, the coaching staff just made sure constantly you're on your toes. You know, to the point of we won the league in 83, 84. And, of course, back then there was no huge ceremony. You know, today they have all these ceremonies and all the, all the hullabaloo, the whole thing. Well, <laughs> what happened with us was the last, the last day, because we'd won the league before the last game of the season, so... We had gotten the medals. The, the FA had sent the medals. And on the Friday before the game, Ronnie Moran came into the first team dressing room with a, with a shoebox. And he stood there and he said, right, he said that. <laughs> he said, here's, there's your, here's, your, uh, here's your medals. Well done, lads. He said, if you think you deserve one, take one. Um, and off you go. And he walked out. So everybody's <laughs> like, you know, because you had to you had to play thirteen games back then to get a medal. Not like now. I mean, you get your backside off the bench for two seconds now, and you get a medal. But you had to play thirteen, or else you didn't get one. Anyway, so we just got up, took a medal, and that was it. And then the last, and then the last game of the season before we went on holiday, he would come in and say, "Well done." Uh, and by the way, don't be late. June tenth, whatever it was, we were back. <laughs> don't be late. Oh, and by the way, you get nothing for last year. Have a nice holiday. I mean, it was constant on your toes, down to earth. You don't get anything for the last whatever. It's all about what you do next. I mean, the culture was just, uh, and again, it's easy for me to tell you about it now because I've had time to think about it. But walking into it, you kind of get sucked in. It's, it's kind of like the Moonies. You know, it takes time, but before you know it, you're doing things, you're thinking a certain way, you're doing everything that everybody else there is doing, including winning. And you know that winning's 
what counts. Uh, and the whole club, the whole club was geared towards the first team on a Saturday winning. That was the only thing that mattered. You know, the kids and, and the reserve team and everyone was done the same and they were they were trained the same and they were taught the same and thought the same way. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, the best club in the world, no, no danger, but the best place to be because it was fun, but the best place to be because we're great players and we won games and we played at Anfield in front of the cop. I mean, just, again, another... Another incredible thing to add on the top of what a, what a place Liverpool was. So yeah, talk about talk about lucky to have getting the opportunity to be there. Absolutely fantastic. There's a bit of luck to it for sure, and maybe a large chunk yeah. to be seen in a place like Trin, whatever. But you know, there's also part, you know, a large part that deserves it. I looked at sort of some of the owners before we came on first division. For those that don't know, now the Premiership slightly different, but the top league in England four times, three FA Cups, European Cup, which is now the Champions League, Team of the Year once in '89. Um, how, as a as a young fat, you know, we've all been young kids, mainly male up until maybe twenty years ago, being pushed uh, that wanted to play football, wanted to score at Ibrox, score at Hamden, score at whatever. How did it feel the first time you touched the Lissa's Anfield sign or the first time you, you essentially picked your winner's medal out of the box by the sounds of it or that one time that you got to got to lift the European Cup? How how does that feel looking back on it however many years later? Or are you just going to say, yeah, it's just sort of part of it? <laughs> no, I think, I think the biggest thing that I think about is so when you go there and you're, you're thinking, right, am I, am, am I good enough, first of all? Am I good enough? And eventually you start taking... I mean, I spent, I spent a year and a half with the first team travelling. I got... I got Maybe three games, a couple of off the bench appearances. Um, I mean, the first year in particular, I think I played once, but I travelled, and I was I was thirteenth man. There used to be one sub back then. I was generally thirteenth man, and that's you know at the time it gets old sitting on a bus and they're playing and you're carrying a kit in. I mean, I'm carrying a kit in. Again, that's another bit of the culture, you know. You think it wasn't like today they get off the bus and all they've got to do is carry their toilet bag. You know, Ronnie would be like, right, at 13, man, one of your jobs is to, to carry the kit in because we did it ourselves. Yeah. And then and then we'd need a, a couple of other lads and so it would be like, hey, give us a hand. But the thing is, people were queuing up to do it because he knew. So I spent a good year Carrying a kit, helping Ronnie and that with the gear after the games, and 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 then I'd come back the Saturday. I'd have to train on the Sunday with the reserve team. So it, you know, it it wasn't it wasn't all flaming. It wasn't all Bertie Big Spuds travelling with Liverpool. You know, it was it, it kind of gets to you eventually. But at the time, as I said, when I was talking about the sponge, because you're sitting on the bench and you're listening to Ronnie and Roy and and, and Bob Paisley and. And Joe Fagan and 
and you listen to all the things they're saying during the game about what the players are doing and why, what they should be doing, what they're not doing. So the whole thing's a learning experience, which at the time you don't really get. You just think, I'm sitting in the bus again for another four hours. I'm not going to play, and then I'm going to sit in the bus for another four, and I'm going to have to go training with the Rezies the next day. But it's all part of the apprenticeship. And I forgot what your question was. <laughs> just basically the feeling of, of you're, you're talking about the start aye, here. Aye, the aye. accolades so, that so, did come, you know. So, yeah, so it, it's it's all about, am I ever going to be one of these guys? Am I ever going to fit in? You know, when I do eventually play, if I play, am I going to be good enough? And I always remember the game where eventually, you know, there's a, there's a build-up of confidence because when you're training with the first team continuously, obviously you're getting better and obviously you're good enough. Otherwise, you wouldn't be training with them. You'd be with the Rezies 24-7. And eventually, when I started getting the breakthrough, I'm, again, I'm thinking, right, I'm going to be good enough. I'm going to get it. And then in 1983, 84, early in the season, we played Everton in the Merseyside Derby at Anfield. And I came in and on the Friday, and we always got the team on a Friday back then with, with, with Paisley and, and Fagan. And I was playing, so I'm like, oh. And Paisley said to me, you know, blah, 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 blah. And of course, I, I never heard the word because my head was spinning. <laughs> and then I said to Joe Fagan after the game, after after the after the meeting, I said, Joe, what did, what, what did the gaffer say? And in typical Liverpool fashion, Joe just went, just go and play some. Just go and play. You know, no, no, no huge long speeches, no fancy words, no filling your head with 60,000 different things. Go and play. We brought you here because you can do certain things. Go, just go and play. Enjoy yourself. And I played the game. I set up the first goal for Ian Rush, and I scored. I scored the third goal with a dive, a diving header. You know, as a kid, you get your mates and you go over to the park, and somebody goes in goal, somebody crosses it, and you try to do diving headers and you try to do volleys and all kinds. And it was a diving header, something I'd done as a kid in front of the court. And as I've walking, as I've as I've got back, and the referee's ready to blow the whistle to start the game again, I thought I can do this. I deserve I deserve to be here. I, I I'm 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 absolutely hundred percent part of this team now. And that was the that was the that was the day. That was the time where I'm like, right, off we go. And I'm this is the place for me. You know. I, as I said, get the get the chills thinking about it now, but yeah, that 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 was the moment for me where I was right. This is where I I, I deserve to be here. I'm part of it. I'm as good as anybody else here. Get on with it. That's that's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> just just going back to what you're saying about culture before. I'm really fascinated in kind of the different cultures in sporting teams and how how different they can be for all great teams because every great team that's done great things has had an unbelievable culture and that that's what it all stems from like you hear all great coaches they say all stems from a culture when you were saying there like you were sit, you're sitting on the bench for a year learning and listening to the managers what how how do you think liverpool created that winning culture that culture where it's never good enough because 
I know from from my small experience, like my brother, he actually plays rugby for Air, and they've won, like they've went undefeated this season, and he comes back every, every um Saturday and asks, oh, how did that game go? They put fifty points on the team, and he says, "Ah, oh, we're shite." Like, we're not enough. Like the man, like the manager on a Tuesday will still be like, "This isn't good enough." This isn't. never giving them praise for anything. Well, it sounds like exactly what we will look like, uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that we then never got any praise, but it was all about responsibility. And mm-hmm. and I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what sums it up the most. It, it was always about looking in the mirror, because if every single one of you looks in the mirror, you know the best players know whether they've played well or not. You know there've been times, and I've had a couple of times where at the end of the game. You get man in the match, you get a bottle of champagne, boo, and I'm like, how did I get that? <laughs> you know, I can remember. Because you always remember the things you didn't do well. You know, that, that's kind of, I guess, goes with the territory when you're playing at that level. It's it's about, you always remember the things you've got to be better at, as opposed to all the great things you did over the 90 minutes. You go home with a couple of things in your head going, and, all, and also... When the game finished, you know, if we if we'd beat somebody ten two, and I had I had gotten beaten down the byline for some reason by by not getting close enough. Say, the first thing Ronnie would say to me after the game was, "What happened with the goal?" And then I'd be like, "Well, yeah. Yeah. he goes, well, what was going there?" And then I'd be like, "Well, you know, I didn't get close enough to say that, right?" And he just walk away. So you've got that in your head, you know. So next time you're like and. Even though you won ten too, but the responsibility thing, I think a story that sums this up the best is when we won the the European Cup uh, in, in Rome in eighty three eighty four against Roma in Roma in their own stadium. I mean, imagine a team coming to Anfield and, and playing the Champions League final against us in Anfield. I mean, imagine how underdogs you, you are. So we played we played Roma in Rome. And we went 1-0 up, Phil Neal scored, put us one up. And then just before half time, they equalised. Uh, a ball came from the left from Phil's side. Ball's played in the box. And Pizarro, I think his name was, got free and headed the ball in the back of the net. And I was at a... I was at a, 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 a I was at a supporters do with, with, with Phil Neal uh, in the US in Atlanta and they were talking about we were talking about the, the culture and the responsibility thing and, and they were asking him questions about the final and he blames himself for the goal now every every paper every TV channel every anybody who ever watched this game blamed the two centre backs because Pizarro being the centre forward got free on his own in the six yard box and headed it in but Phil was telling everybody it was his fault. Because if he'd stopped the cross, then that wouldn't have happened. And that's that's a perfect example of what we were like. Because, because the ball ends up in the back of the net, you could have stopped it maybe three three decisions earlier. You know, instead of instead of running past somebody in the halfway line, then you take responsibility for that. And so if every single person 
at every stage, is taking responsibility and looking at the goal as a whole, not just the guy heading it in the back of the net, but what could we have done way back there to stop this? And that's, again, that's when we see footballers talking about defending from the front. You know, Rush and Dalgleish were the best at that. You know, talk about being the first defender. Never mind Rushy scoring a thousand goals and Dalgleish just being different class. They would take responsibility as well because if they had if they had slackened, you know, they'd be thinking, right, I need to get back in position quicker. Because maybe if I'd stopped that, it wouldn't end up in the back of the net 60 seconds later. So it's a complete and utter responsibility thing. Obviously, you need good players, but if you have the right the right mental focus on it, wow. I mean, if you've got, if you've got 11 guys who, who are looking to see what part they played in, anything and everything... Well, again, just a, an incredible force to go up against. It's, it's it's quite interesting to hear this. Like you know, it's you're talking about breaking into this this team and then getting your place and then feeling like part of it and then notably being made aware, words wise and whatnot, that you actually, are part of it. Actually, can can um, interrupt you there, Wallace? Yeah, can of course. Of course. I think it's something that was going through my head while I was talking to you there because I that I started that game. On the bench, as I said, I was like 21. I'd be like 21, nearly 22, something like that. And before the game, when you get to the stadium, we go out onto the field. Just kind of what you do. Anyway, we get there. And on this side of the field, there was about 20, I'd say about 22, 23,000 of our fans on this side. And on the other side, the other half of the thing, there was about 40,000, 45,000 Italians who'd been in the stadium for about two hours previous, singing and fireworks and you name it, and flags and the whole thing. And, of course, when we come out, they're going mental burn and all kinds of stuff. So we go over to see our fans, as you normally do. So we take a little walk around the back of the goal, you know, giving it all that, and we get back to the halfway line. So I think we'll just, you know, normally what you do is just go back inside. So Graham Soonis was our captain. And of course, this 40,000 mob over here, all burn and whistling and the whole thing. And he turns around to us and goes, why don't we go up that end as well? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> he says, hey, come on, let's go up that end. So I was like, ah, I thought. And he had a big, big cheesy grin on his face. And I thought... I'm going with this guy. And we all marched up the other end and we're giving it all back. <laughs> and they were going absolutely bananas. And they, we were smiling and laughing. And they, they must have gone, what's this look here? We were walking towards them. Oh, it was brilliant. Honestly, Tunis, Tunis was something else. It was just, and I can still see him turning around going, why don't we take a walk up the other end? I was like, oh, right, I'm coming with you. Brilliant. Fantastic. <laughs> I think his flag planting ad, uh, antics in Turkey proved he wasn't scared of causing any controversy. <laughs> I really got that. Perfect. Yeah. Um, do you keep in touch with everyone there, Stevie? Like your Kenny's, Graham's, that sort of thing. I there's always stuff going on where we eventually we and again, again, you know, you're talking about all great teams. All, all great teams. It doesn't matter the the time in between when you actually physically see each other, it, nothing changes. 
Nothing changes. I mean, I went back. I went back two thousand six or seven. I think it was two thousand seven. So Kenny, Kenny called me up. Uh, his wife Marina um, had had breast cancer, uh, and she'd she'd had treatment, and she was better. And so that's when they started the the, the Marina Dalglish um, Cancer Awareness Fund, and they started they started you know um, making money for it. And so we put together a game at Anfield. The two teams, Everton Liverpool, eighty six cup final teams. And so at that time we were all pretty much still able to run around, you know. So I was, I think I was like forty five at the time. And so go back, and as soon as you walk in the dressing room, so this is this is what two thousand. Let's say two thousand six to make it count easy. So this is like four. This is what. 30 years later, as soon as you walk in the dressing room, same guys, same team, the hierarchy was exactly the same. It was the same people starting taking the mickey. The same, the, the, just everyone was the same. Nothing had changed. We're all just older, but, but absolutely nothing changed. And we all went straight to the same spot we used to sit in as well. I mean, without even thinking about it, just go straight to your spot. I mean, it was just surreal. Um, so, I mean, again, whether it's there or whether it's, you know, going around, I've done a few things with Banzi and Johnny Aldridge and, uh, and 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 different guys and going to see Kerry and seeing Big Al. I mean, it just, nothing changes. It's, it's just going back in time. It's like jumping into a machine and going back in time and everybody's thinking the same way they did. Talking the same, and again, as I said, the intriguing thing was the hierarchy was ex- was still exactly the same. Basically, you know, with Peter Reid and Bracewell and Snods and and all all the other players, and then our lot, Macker and and Ronnie Whelan, and just basically everybody could look after themselves back then because you had to, because you were basically allowed to kick each other, which. Which today's players miss out on, because there's nothing you don't there's no, there's no there's a great, it's a great feeling when you ram into somebody, and you don't always come <laughs> out the right side. By the way, you know, and but and you learn how to. I mean, again, these skills are all disappeared in football now. You know, growing up, growing up, you learned from the older guys, and you learn from things that happened on the field. How to take care of yourself. I'll give you an example. So I remember playing Patrick Thistle for A United. I went for a ball. I was on one side, I was on, on the halfway line. And to make the challenge, I had to run across the halfway line. So I'm running across the way, and the opponent's coming this way. And that's a huge mistake. Because I stuck my leg out, and the guy just ran right across the top of my knee. They just rammed me. Now I'm lucky that I just I just bruised it. It was really really painful, but I was lucky. I had the stud marks, the whole thing. But straight away you go right. I won't do that again. But the next time somebody does that, if I'm on the opposite side of it, they're getting it. And again, <laughs> and again, back then when you got done, it wasn't the other guy's fault for doing you. It was your fault for putting yourself in the position to get done. So you're learning all these things all the time. 
but obviously you can't do that now. <laughs> you can't do that now. But but there was a there was a certain enjoyment about it. Even even when you got done, as painful as it was, there was a certain like that's really sore, but I really enjoyed that. <laughs> you know, just that that <laughs> physical bar, just that physical clash. It, it's hard to explain, but there's there's just something that's really enjoyable about getting smashed into each other. Apart from playing nice football, of course. Yeah, I, yeah, I totally yeah, back to the rival, but but yeah, that was that was it. I mean the the uh, the cup final in '89, obviously with, with Hillsborough, with both teams. I mean, it was just there was not one end was them, one end was them. It was it was just all in mixed in. It was just the whole stadium was all mixed in with Liverpool and Everton fans sitting together. Incredible. Were you were you on the pitch that day, Stevie? I was, no. yeah. You were, Jesus. Yeah, that must be a horrible experience. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 tough to describe how 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 bad a time that was. Um, it was bad enough being there, seeing it, being involved in it afterwards, uh, consoling families and and people who'd been injured in it and going to funerals and. It was just a horrible time, but obviously, for the people that actually lost somebody, it'd be a hundred times worse. Um, just a horrible time in the club's history. Um, something that could have been avoided, uh, and, and as usual, the people who really were to blame for it, because it's the government. Well, the whole things, the whole things to do with the with the government, you know, the police. The government, the MPs, the politicians, you name it, every single one of them trying to deflect away from the cause, what caused the, the, the disaster in the first place, deflecting the blame. And it took, what, 25 years uh, to get, only because, in particular, the politicians had all passed, either passed away or moved on. The new the new politicians coming in agreed to open the files of what actually actually went on, and then of course then we find out who was to blame, why, what should have been done, what wasn't done, but it's twenty five years too late, and the people responsible pretty much got away with it. So, yeah, 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 an an awful an awful time, an awful time. Yeah, pretty hard old one to be experienced. Obviously, as you say, if you're someone that's losing or you know being lost is worse, but still not a not a nice experience. Well, it affected at all. It absolutely affected the club for probably the next seven, eight, nine years. You know, I, I said to you earlier that every single thing at the club was about the first team on a Saturday. Everything was directed towards that. That completely changed. Everything after that for a good five, six years was about Hillsborough, about looking after anything that had to be done for the families or the court cases or just... And there was just a cloud hanging over Anfield at that time. Uh, it really did affect the club. It affected us as well. We, we weren't as good a side the following, the following year. I don't know. I certainly wasn't. My head wasn't, wasn't straight. Um... So yeah, a huge impact on the club. 
Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like Liverpool took it upon themselves to make sure that their role was done yeah. correctly, though it wasn't the case of well it's done. Yeah. Absolutely. I always respected that with allegiance to Liverpool you know, impacting that thought. I just I always thought that well before my time, don't be wrong, but definitely a thing that I'd always thought. Um Mentioned sort of being a kid playing football a few times, Steve. Yeah, we've we've all done it. You know, the whoever your hero is or whatever hit a shot into top corner. Mine as a as a young Rangers fan was Pedro Mendes's goal against Celtic. I don't know where your affinity lies in Scotland, but um, I'm not also that. Willie Henderson was my boy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very famous name, but um, one thing that y- your biggest biggest thing. As as certainly I was, and I think still game. I don't know if you've watched it much yourself. Oh, but it was I can repeat it word for word a lot. Yeah. Well, the <laughs> one, the one where they they're walking through the park, and there's a few young lads playing football, and they say, "What's your biggest dream, son?" And he goes, "Score a goal at Hamden in the ninetieth minute," and it is the truest thing on the planet. Now I know you didn't do that, but you played for Scotland. How how did that? That must have been big. Well, maybe it wasn't, but it seems to me that must have been up there with everything you've done. Yeah, when you make your, your your debut is absolutely the 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 thing that sticks out. Um, I mean, to stand. See, my 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 opinion is Flower of Scotland shouldn't be the anthem. You know, Scotland of Brave to me is the anthem. Yeah. To 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 make your debut at Hamden Park, stand in front of a full house with a hundred pipers and drummers. I mean, it doesn't get any better. It really, it really doesn't. When you're just standing there listening to it, and they're standing behind you, firing it out. I mean, yeah, that 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 that's it. So you're standing there and you're thinking about, you know, I used to go to Scotland games. I was at the Czechoslovakia game in the seventies when we when we qualified for the World Cup, and you're like, wow. I was I was about three hundred yards away over there standing now I'm standing here on the field listening to the bagpipes. I mean it just it it it, it doesn't get any better. And as I said, Scotland the Brave, to stand there listening to Scotland the Brave with the pipes and drums doesn't get any better. Can imagine. And you you were at a World Cup, weren't you? Eighty six in Mexico. Yeah, it was abs- the conditions in Mexico were perfect for uh a group of ginger-haired, pasty-faced Scotsmen <laughs> who couldn't breathe for 10 seconds. <laughs> I mean, the conditions were absolutely... I mean, we're kicking... And we were kicking off at 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the afternoon during the day. I mean, the conditions were horrendous. Oh, I mean, it was, the game The game we played Germany was, was, was the funniest because... As I said, when when you made a run, it, it took you so long to recover because of, there was no air and because of the heat. And so we get into the we get into this restroom at half time, and you can imagine, you can imagine a group of can you imagine a big fat pig lying in the ground, and there's about there's about fifteen little piglets, and there's only ten nipples, and they're all fighting to get on the nipple. Well, that's what we were like in the dressing room because there was only about six oxygen masks. They had in all the dressing rooms, <laughs> they, had six, they had oxygen masks hanging up on the wall. So there's eleven of us, 
And we're off pinties, fella, to climb and climb and over each other, trying to get this oxygen mask, right, to put it on to try and get some air in. It was like, <laughs> oh, God. I mean, it was funny. It wasn't funny at the time. But no. it's funny to think about it now. Yeah, the conditions. Conditions were horrendous. And, and unfortunately, we... We got we got drawn in what they called today as the group of death. We had we had Denmark who were the up and coming European side at the time. Uh, we had West Germany who were the side at the time, and we had Uruguay who were one of the top South American sides at the time. And we had a good we had a good team as well. You know we we were a good side, um, but as per normal things just didn't quite work out. Yeah. 19, 1986, um, a player, well, I think there's a few things jump out to mind in my head when I think of the sort of best individual performances, you know, 2012 with Messi, maybe like a, a 62 of Pele and then like a 57 of Di Stefano. But the one that everyone seems to think that was number one was 1986 with Maradona and just his sheer brilliance, which leads me to a question of, now you might you might disagree with that and, and fair enough, you'll know a hell of a lot more than I do, um, but it purely to sort of lead up to the question of who was, who was the best player you ever played with and then who was the best player you ever played against? Do you know, the, the, who is the, who's the best ever you played with is impossible to answer. Just, Imagine. just impossible. I mean, you look at the players I played with at Liverpool, you know, Dalglish, Dalglish, Roche, Sunez, Hansen, uh, Phil Neal, Ray Kennedy. Um, I mean, there's just, where do you stop? Although, go talk about goal scorers. Uh, Johnny Barnes, <laughs> Beardsley, uh, you know, Robbie Fowler, when I was getting older, Big Manaman. I was going to say, did you play Fowler, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you choose who's the best player? It's, it's just impossible. And 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 against against is is actually a difficult one because too busy concentrating on what I'm doing to get carried away and bothered about who I'm playing against. I mean, playing against Cruyff before he retired in the early eighties. Um. Played against George Best when I played at Air United. Uh, obviously, he was past his best by then. Um, Platini, played against Platini. Uh, Boniek. Um, played against a load of guys, but I can't always I, I can't turn around and say, well, whoa, I was like, absolutely. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's too busy playing. Too busy playing to be bothered. Chris Waddle was a great player. I mean, there's great players in England. Shearer, uh, Gascoigne, you know, tons of great players. Hoddle. Um, yeah, tons, tons of great players, but they come around and say I was bedazzled by anybody. I mean, I'll tell you my toughest opponent, and you probably won't even know his name. The only guy that ever, when I was at my best, the only guy that I couldn't work out was a guy called Gordillo, played for Spain. He played for Real Madrid as well. Um, couldn't work him out. He was unorthodox. He was gangly. Um, I couldn't work the guy out. He's the only guy I remember playing, as I said, when I was at my best, he was the only one I never worked out. 
Couldn't wake him up. Speaking of still being able to run around, as most of you that listen regularly will already know, I like to keep myself fit while juggling a lot of other things. I find myself struggling to fit everything in and do it well when I start my days at 4.30 in the morning. I find myself consuming quite a lot of caffeine at times, which really isn't good for anyone. Then we've been told about Magic Mind and I was keen to give it a go. It's easy for me to add into my morning routine when I usually would have my breakfast with a cup of coffee anyway. It's quick and no time to prepare, so it comes with no hassle. Along with finding myself being more productive throughout the day, I found since taking it for a week that I sleep better too. Some of you will know I wear a whoop that is never off my wrist. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's a wearable that tracks your sleep and everyday activity. From this, I was able to see that I was sleeping better because of taking in less caffeine, which is for me is exactly what I want. Magic Mind contains matcha, which is nature's extended release caffeine, which has a longer effect and reduces stress. If, like me, you're always looking for more ways to improve your sleep and productivity throughout the day, you should give it a try at magicmind.com slash rukitchen with the code rukitchen20. You can get up to 56% off with your first subscription or 20% off your first one-time purchase. That's R-U-K-I-T-C-H-E-N 20. You can get up to 56% off your first subscription or 20% off your first one-time purchase. That's R-U-K-I-T-C-H-E-N 20 for 56% off. It also works if you're already a subscriber. You will save in your next subscription payment. It's good to see, Steve, even after the career, you had the lungs on you to keep you going. So, no, not a player not a player I had heard of, which is a bit of an embarrassment, a bit of a football nerd, in fairness. Well, not... To be honest, not not many people do unless unless you're unless you're from Spain and you're a Real Madrid fan. He's he's not a guy who, because of the amount of well-known players or legendary players they've had, he's somebody who a lot of people outside of Spain wouldn't know. You know, yeah. I've spoken to people from Spain and who follow La Liga and are Real Madrid fans, and as soon as I mention the name. I mean, they know straight away who he is. So, yeah, outside of Spain, he's he's probably unknown. But yeah, yeah, that that that's why most people probably won't have heard of him. And I'm guessing was he a left winger? He was a left winger. Yeah, yeah. I was playing right back that evening, uh, and as I said, I could I couldn't work him out. Um, you know, the biggest the biggest thing was that he was very unorthodox. You know, there's not that many players who are. Uh, who are like that. You know, somebody like Chris Waddle, for example, was so good because he was unorthodox as well. You know, with these big, long legs. And and when he moved, to the naked eye, it looks like he's moving slowly. <laughs> but he's actually not, you know. So it's, it's players like that are, are unique. There's not many of them around. And he was certainly one of them. And uh, I'll tell you, I could, I could work him out. <laughs> And uh, I wouldn't take offence to this question, Stevie, but it is absolutely the case. You did play a bit before my time, uh, before when I was playing, uh, before when I was watching, sorry. How and, dare you? How dare I don't know, you? I apologise, I apologise. <laughs> You're all right, uh, don't worry. And uh, for those listening, you've probably noticed my voice has changed notably. Stevie and I have just started recording about 10 minutes ago. Um, 
Ed, Stevie and I, I well, Ed and I lost Wi-Fi uh, when we were recording a few days ago. So that's why my voice has randomly changed and Ed can't actually make it at the minute. So if you wonder where Ed's gone and why I randomly sound different, that is the reason. Um, but yeah, were, was you, were you a fast right back? Were you a strong right back? What what was your sort of, you know, like Trent's of the world at the minute? It's not really a defender. He's a, he's a passer from the back. You know, how was your sort of game at right back? Well, I was, I was, uh, I was certainly a guy who liked to get forward uh, every single opportunity I could. Uh, I was fortunate that I had a bit of pace. Uh, I also had a good set of lungs on me, so I could get up and down. Yeah. Um, and I prided myself, which I guess was one of the things that that irks me today about about the game is that it didn't. I don't get the impression that there's that many people pride themselves on defending. You know, yeah. and certainly in my era. People took it personally. If if you were beaten by somebody, or 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 you did something wrong, or or you were out of position, you know, you took it personally, and it mattered. And when I watch the game today, and and I, and I look at Trent Alexander, for example, at Liverpool, listen, going the other way, going forward, the guy's absolutely top class. But defensively, he's a liability. You know, I mean. You have to find somewhere in between. You can't, you can't, you can't be world class defensively and world class going forward. There are there are very few that have played the game that have fallen into that category. Um, I mean, I'm I'm thinking the likes of people like Roberto Carlos from Brazil, who who won the World Cup in the seventies, a guy who you couldn't get past, but who when going forward was just dynamite. Yeah. Uh, so I like to think of myself as absolutely yeah. defensively. Top class at my best, uh, and I, I and I knew what I was doing going forward. Um, scored a few goals, uh, but yeah, it was important to me that that a I did my job defensively, and it was important to the team, and it was important to the manager because at the end of the day, that was my job. I was in there primarily to defend, but then if you can add something else, then that's even better, and I certainly could add some stuff going forward. You mentioned, well, earlier for the viewers, last week for myself, um, we, we spoke a bit about the likes of like Neymar and stuff like that and the and the, the diving about and whatnot. Is, is, football right. a different, is football a different game now than in the 80s? It's obviously the same sport. Absolutely. It's a completely different game, yeah. Well, because it's, di it's refereed differently. You know, the physical aspect of the game, the authorities have tried to... Well, I, let, let me make it easier. There's no question in the 80s that you could physically hurt people and not be sent off. Yeah. And it was part of your armory as a defender or as a team. You know, I, I look at games today, and let's take Man City, for example. Man City played Huddersfield yesterday in the FA Cup. Got beat, Huddersfield got beat 5-0. And it's not a surprise because there are very few tactics that Huddersfield can use to beat Manchester City because... In the 80s, you could physically kick people. You maybe get a booking, um, and of course you couldn't do it again because you might get another one, but you could actually leave that mark on somebody. Uh, as far as physical challenges, not just kicking people, you know, you could hit people with your shoulder, and it was it was deemed legal. You know, so it's the way the game's refereed today, the way the laws are interpreted today, uh, is everything is in a less physical manner 
and they're trying to make everything about about just being able to play football without without people getting in your face, which which if you're a player today is great because you've got more time and more space and you don't have anybody on your back and kicking you and all that stuff and it makes it easier to play, you know. Um, so, you know, when you talk about the best players in the 80s, they were something special because they not only didn't have as much time and space to play, but they also had people like me trying to physically harm them. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a completely different game. Uh, and the one thing I would say is there absolutely is no doubt that the players that play the game today, if you transported them back into the 80s, I'll tell you what, they would have a wake-up call, a lot of them. I'm not I'm not so sure a lot of them would survive. Uh, and certainly the game's played completely differently today. As I said, there's a lot more time and space because of the, the lack of the physical presence. But there's also a lot more time and space because the ball... In particular, you can you can you know Liverpool are a great example of the two fullbacks Robertson and Alexander Arnold. You know they can stand on the touchline either side and ping the ball 50, 60 yards to each other because the ball is a lot lighter. It moves a lot quicker, and again, that's why teams can pass the ball out from the back the way they do now because the field, although the dimensions are the same because you can have both fullbacks standing on the touchline. It means there's more space actually on the field to play, and the fact that the ball moves quicker means it's it's harder to close the ball down. So yeah, in our day there was less time, less space. It was easier to close people down, and so you know one of our traits at Liverpool was we, we would we would squeeze the life out of teams, and they couldn't get past us. Uh, and not everybody could do that. You know, it takes it, it takes coordination. It takes a football brain to do it properly. Uh, and we could do it properly. And that was part of our armory, particularly at Anfield. Teams just couldn't get out. Not the way they do it today because there's more time and space. And, and they, they can go from one end of the field all the way to the other. And again, that's because they have more time and space. The ball moves quicker. It's harder to close it down. Uh, and you can... You can anybody today can ping a ball sixty yards. That wasn't the case in the eighties with the, the the ball that we had, you know. And that again, one of the reasons why Liverpool was so good or why we were so good is because our players, our touch, uh, and our our composure on the ball was so good that even though we had little, not as much time and space, we could take advantage of it, the the quality that we had. And that, that change from the 80s to now, uh, I think it would be fair to say a softer game from someone that's been yeah. involved at that stage, like yourself, to now, you know, analysing it very deeply, I assume. Is that a good or a bad change? Because you, you speak to someone like my dad, very similar ages to yourself, Stevie, um, looking at like taking head and out of football and, and things getting soft, that's a lot of rubbish, whatever. But then you look at, well, is it safer for the players? Is it a good change? Is there good and bad? What do you think? Yeah, look, I, I don't think anybody that loves football can turn around and say, "Oh, I wish, I wish you could go and and just blatantly kick people." You know, um, you know. I spoke earlier on. I think about you know 
we used to call it doing somebody, <laughs> where you could physically harm somebody and it was kind of allowed. I'm not I'm not daft enough to think that that's a good that that that's not right really you know in the in the in the realm of things that's that's not a good thing to be able to physically wreck somebody because you can do it we did it but is it better today well it, it it's a lot safer for players that, there's no question so I'm not going to argue the point the point I'll argue is the pleasure and the satisfaction and the feeling that it gives you to have that physical contact with somebody, that the players don't understand what that is today. I think I think they miss out on that. And I think the fans miss out on it as well. You know, on the odd occasion now where you see a 50-50 challenge, the first thing that happens is the crowd erupts. Yeah. Because they love it. So not only are the players missing that contact or that that there's a there's a feeling that you get when you have a real physical contact. And obviously it's better if both parties get up and run away. But there's also the crowd. The crowd used to love it as well. It got them going. So these are things that you don't really see much in today's game. Uh, and I think I think everybody's missing out because of it. Players are missing out on it. And the crowd's missing out on it. Now, don't get me wrong. I enjoy watching football today. I do. Um, but it, it is absolutely, to answer your question, it's a different game. And it's, uh, I mean, I think you're right. <laughs> Obviously, the, the level of football I played at was probably worse than you played when you were about three years old. But th- there's, a, there's, a, <laughs> there's a feeling of pride coming out that tackle on top. But, uh, you know, there's, there's a bit of, there's, there's got to be some kind of competitiveness to it as well. But, Aye. yeah. Like you say, that transition's got to go in the right direction. I'm going to ask you a question here that I don't actually know how much... It actually, is. actually, can I, can I interrupt on, you there? Can I just throw in? I remember, I remember the time when the game started changing and, and really it, it started changing particularly around the late, the late 80s, the early 90s is when it really changed. And a lot of that to, to do is with... with the influx of European players in particular. Because you used to do it in, in, in Europe, when you used to play in the, the, the old uh, European Cup, that was one of the problems we had because when we went away from home in Europe, the referees were used to a less physical game. And so we had to be very... The last thing that we would... That, that, that Paisley or Fagan or... Or, or anybody, any of the coaches we had would say before we went out, right, remember, we're not at home, the referee's going to referee the game a different way and you can't go about your business the way we do at home because if you're hitting somebody, they're going to go down, you know they're going down, which didn't happen in England. You know, it was... If you got knocked over... It was an it was a situation where you you felt embarrassed to be knocked over, you know. That's how it was. Now, completely. Now it's like nobody cares. It's like oh, you know. But that was the situation with us. But when you went to Europe, you couldn't you couldn't challenge the same. You had to be smart because the, the European players would go over very easily. Anyway, so if you go back to us, we had a player that joined us called Ronnie Rosenthal, who actually was an Israeli. And the very first game he played, 
somebody made a challenge on him and he went down. And when I say he went down, it was it was like a dive. It, it was a pure dive. He jumped in the air. I mean, people in the crowd were giving him marks for the dive. And we, we, all, we all took a breath. And we went over to him and we were like, Ronnie, what are you doing? And he's like, what do you mean? We're like, don't do that. And he's like, oh, okay. Unfortunately, loads and loads of Europeans came and, and joined the league, which obviously they were great players, but that that that's when it really started kicking off with the diving. The definitely the early nineties. It does. It does. The, the, I mean, like the 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 probably the the flair that that extra bit of time allows allows for a really an interesting game to watch now, but it does. It does add a the, the diving thing. I just it, it probably annoys me more than anything in football because it's just. I mean, there's there's. It's a, it's a, I think it's actually a little. I don't think it's as bad today as it's been previously. I would agree. It's still yeah. it's still there, but it's certainly not as bad. I mean, the mid the mid nineties to the two thousands, it was ridiculous. And again, half of the problem was the players, but the other half are the officials. Because if officials are going to referee the game and let somebody do that, then it's just going to encourage them to do it. So it's it kind of goes both. To me, there's there's two problems. It's yes, the players, but half of it is the is the officials, because the officials very easily could have had a could have had a stance and said, right, hold on a minute, we're we're not giving fouls for this. And then the first time that you do it and you don't get a foul, if I'm the coach. Whoever it is, I'm going right. Don't do that again, because you're not getting it. And then it would, you know, it's it's it seems a very simple solution, but it's exactly what it is. It's the solution. The refereeing, the refereeing one's an interesting one because I mean Ed's not with us at the minute, but Ed's a massive rugby fan, and we spoke about this a few times. And I was watching a game in the Rugby World Cup with him, and I couldn't believe how much the players, the referees, said it. Bang, that's done. Because I, I, with the sport I've watched football, it's just not what it is, and it's. I actually wonder if referees don't have enough power as they should in football, and maybe that's because of the star stardom that comes with players or whatever. But I, in my opinion, what the referee says goes. None of this, you know, at the ref, at the ref, at the ref. What they say should be final, and and I've I don't think I've ever known that to be the case. I'm twenty seven, you know. I've never really known that to be how right. it is. Uh, maybe that's wrong. That's just a sort of perception. But um... well, actually, actually, this year they're clamping down on it. The problem that so so there's no question it was definitely a culture or it is a culture in football about having a go at the referee. Whereas in rugby, it's the that's not the culture. Yeah. And so you grow. And so you grow up. You grow up playing. Not until you get a little older, not as obviously schoolboys, but when you start getting towards your adulthood, the culture was that you could talk to the referee and have a go at the referee, and he, and, he, and you knew you weren't getting sent off. Whereas in rugby, and I played rugby at school, you never said a word to the ref because you knew you were in trouble. I mean, it, it's a culture thing, and unfortunately, as I said, this year in particular, the referees are. are are clamping down on anybody. To, the, the the captain's allowed to talk to them, as in as it is in rugby, and that's it. If anybody else, or the, there's any gestures, they've been yellow-carding them this year. Now, unfortunately, 
they never follow through over a period of time with this. You know, they'll do this this year, and then next year it'll be a little slacker, and then the next year it'll be slacker again. And 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 I'll be shocked if in three and four years we're not back to well, the referees are going to clamp down again because they just they don't they don't the referees don't stay with it long enough to make it to to let it become the culture. They uh, they, they do it for a period of time and then they slacken off and then it starts again and then all of a sudden they start doing it again and then they slack off. That that's kind of what's been happening for years. Let's put the word video assistant in front of the word referee. What's right. your opinion on VAR? It's fantastic. I'm trying to gauge your face if you're being completely serious or not. I'm not sure. I am absolutely. I think I think VAR is great. Listen, as a former player, having scored goals that have been disallowed mm-hmm. and are completely the wrong decision, you know, offset like ref. Linesman used to guess for offsides. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no question. They guessed. How can that be right when you're guessing? And I've, and I've had, uh, I've got it in my head right now. I scored a goal in a, in a, a cup game uh, against Blackburn away at Erud Park. Made a run in behind. Ball slipped in. Walked around the goal and put it back in there. Linesman put his flag up. And then you watch it when you get home. It's on side. No, it's not. It's not even. It's not even a tough decision if you're the, if you're the linesman and you're in the right place, then you see it. But if the linesman's in the wrong place and gets the wrong angle, then you're done. So it's an, to me, it's a no-brainer, particularly offside because it's dead easy. It's a computer. You draw the line, yeah. and it's either offside or it's not. And if you're offside, and all these people that complain, well, that's wrong. Because he's because he's like two inches offside, he shouldn't be offside. What kind of logic is that? It's it's so much easier. You're either offside or you're not offside. And if they can draw a line, which they do, that shows that a legal part of your body that shouldn't be is offside, then why is anybody complaining about that? Well, I don't think anyone complains of what you're saying. I think we all agree with that. That the issue that I'm seem to see and it blows my mind that this is a thing with premiership whatever level referees is it's still not being correct that the computer's correct but it's being what we perceived because there's there's things that are happening we've all seen it where of our decisions made and the computer you can see you can make that decision look at the computer that's correct but the right decision isn't coming out of it that's where the issue seems to come, and maybe, maybe the timing that comes with it, sort of removing that flow. I have, from day one, being completely right. with you on that opinion of, you know, if if it's a millimeter offside, yeah, it's offside. <laughs> the mark, that's what that's offside. Right. It's uh, mad. That it's like, oh well, it's close, so it should be all right. That's not how it works. Um, right. But it seems to not be being used correctly. Right. That's where the issue right. comes in. And so, and so, as far as the offside is concerned. I don't know the I don't know the facts, but I'm going to guess that on the odd occasion they might get it wrong. But I tell you what, you weigh that with a rep with a linesman guessing. Agreed. <laughs> so yeah. so that that's that's a no brainer. That's a no brainer. So that's just about getting the computer thing spot on. The problem is, 
And this is the other bit that I don't get why people go completely mental. Because the other VAR decisions are, are about a refereeing decision again. And again, would you rather have a game that's going so fast and, and the referee has to make a decision there and then, or would you rather we had the VAR and we get to look at it again? Because the arguments are all about the decision the referees made having had another look at it. And again, obviously it's not the odd occasion where we all think they get it wrong. It's a lot, it's more than that. But I'll tell you what, it's way better than again a referee who is trying to decide whether it's a penalty kick, is there any contact? All kinds of things that go on in a game. You know, red cards, for example. You know, you can't always see things properly. So, it's not perfect, but it's way better. VAR is way better than having some referee who has one chance to see something and make the right decision. I, I don't see how anybody can argue that that's what we should be doing as opposed to the VAR. The problem is you need to have the right people making the decisions in the VAR. You know, it's, it's really interesting to hear you say that because as you were saying it, I think I know the exact difference as to why those watching are complaining and those professionally in the know, like yourself, see it as the right way. You see football as, this is football, this is career, life, business, this is what we are doing. Whereas those watching it, that's not the case. They're, they're probably watching thinking, oh, well, if they have to go to that wee TV over there, that's six minutes that that flow's gone, that sort of whatever. That's probably the difference. Now I've never really considered it until you said it there. Um, yeah, that's quite interesting. Well, no, no, no professional will ever argue a referee changes a decision having looked at it, and obviously it's the right decision. Nobody will complain about that. Nobody. Yeah, and truth, no one has any grounds to complain on that. You know, no. that's. Just, I think it's when no, you can. Absolutely not. You you absolutely accept it. Yeah. You yeah you can you accept it. Oh, that's quite interesting. There's nothing worse than sitting after a game. I remember playing Man United at Old Trafford. Uh, I think we ended up losing the game 2-1. And the second goal, Mark Hughes scored. I went to clear the ball. And he stopped it with his hand. And it dropped down to his feet and he put it in the back of the net. I mean, it's a hand. It's a hand. I, I, it doesn't get any clear it's a hand ball. But the, but the referee never saw it. You know, it was a busy penalty box. I've got to clear the ball. Set him right smack in the middle of his palm of his hand, which is why it's dropped dead down to his feet. And he's put it in the back of the net. And he ended, I mean, that made it 2-0. We got one back, but but still. So so I'm sitting in, I'm sitting in the dressing room afterwards, and I'm like, How, how's this happened? <laughs> he's, he's pulled it down. With, it's come down off his, straight off the palm of his hand. And, and they end up winning the game. I mean, so, yeah, as I said, professionals are absolutely, yeah. And I'm sure Manchester United added to that as well. <laughs> um, well, they're not bothered. Yeah. Listen, if you're on that side of it, you don't care, right? Yeah, for sure. And that's, I was just going to ask, because it's it's really interesting interviewing someone like yourself who's who, who literally was at the peak of something. We've had a few folk on, you know, but you were at the peak of a thing that was very much in the public eye. And just to sort of understand the psychology, put yourself 
in Mark Hughes's position there, are you doing that and just going with it, pretending it never happened? Or are you saying this happened? Just out of interest, I think I know the answer. Speaking of being at the absolute peak of something, I think it's fair to say, physically, I am not there. Throughout the day, I can find myself being very productive, and then one minute later, procrastinating very well. I found Magic Mind kept me at a productivity equilibrium throughout the day and noticed a higher creative outlet for myself since using the product. One thing brilliant about Magic Mind is its utilisation of the product Ashwagandha, a product that's been utilised for over 8,000 years, when people looked a bit more like I did. Ashwagandha reduces stress and anxiety, and in today's worry-ridden world, that's got to be a good thing, right? If you want to give it a try with 56% off, head to magicmind.com forward slash kitchen 20 that's R-U-K-I-T-C-H-E-N 20 and use the code RUKITCHEN20, R-U-K-I-T-C-H-E-N 20. Check the info out in the description, and if you don't like it, you'll literally have your money back within three or four hours, no questions asked. Now, what do you think Stevie has to say? Oh, aye. Yeah, you can at the time he'll be like, What, what are you talking about? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, but then after you go now, by the way, what about that goal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we would be talking about it in the bar after. Like I'm excited about we go in the bar, obviously don't do that anymore. <laughs> I was gonna ask, <laughs> is that a thing you did a lot? Yeah, yeah. Oh, we straight in the bar after the game. Yeah, been to the players' lounge. And and you I, you know, I I didn't get the opportunity, but if my if I'd been going for the up to the bar and Matt Hughes was standing there, I'd have been, "Hey, you, yeah, Jamie, yeah, yeah," and he'd be like, "Ah, what? <laughs> yeah, right." You know, it'd be one of them. Bothered. So was that quite common to to meet with with opposition that night? Was that quite common? Well, straight after the game, we'd probably get about half an hour because. They've got to get all the stuff on the boss and get all the things sorted. You know, the two managers, back then again, the, the two managers would, would sit down and have a chat and have a beer or whiskey or a glass of wine or whatever it was back then. So you probably had about half an hour from getting changed before the boss was leaving. So we just all go into the player, the, the players' bar and, and we'd be in there and the opposition would be in there with their families and wherever. And you're, you're sort of your equivalents now your trends, like you were saying, is pretty much the exact equivalent. It, a bar is not somewhere they're going to go. <laughs> Maybe no. apart from Jack Grealish. <laughs> but um, was that was that very common? You know, going for a few beers, that was absolutely fine. Not an issue at all. Grant. No, away from home. Away from home, we would... Away from home, we would... Uh, we would have crates of beer on the bus. You know, we'd go in the players' bar... We're away. Okay, we're away, we're away with West Ham. It's a five-hour bus journey back. We're away at West Ham. We go in the players' bar at West Ham. Have a couple of pints. Make sure you're not late for the bus. Get on the bus. Then we'd we'd stop. We'd stop five minutes for the ground and pick up the fish and chips and buying <laughs> chips and all that. You know, and again, we don't do that. Uh, and then we'd have that, and then we'd we'd start firing into the beer. That's interesting. That's interesting. And just one thing before we jump on to sort of your your second career away from being on the pitch yourself, Stevie. You mentioned again it was the last time we spoke um for us, but for those listening just a few minutes ago, that you played against Cruyff. What was that like? Now I know you were saying, you know, 
you're not really focused on that, and I, I totally understand that. But when you when you ask people their their top five, maybe your top seven, I would say Cruyff's always in that top seven, and for a lot of people, uh, three. What was that like? Well, it's just it, it's really more to do. Listen, the guy was. I'm going to guess the guy was probably about 36, 37 by then. Yeah. So he wasn't, he was far from his peak, but it kind of makes the spectacle. You know, it's not, It's when somebody's that age, it's not so much about what they're doing. It's about having the opportunity, not just to play against them, but for the fans to see him as well. That That's, it's the experience of playing being on the field with a guy who was that good, you know, because obviously at 37 years of age, he, he, he's keeping things simple. He's not he's not dribbling past three and four guys and and, and all that stuff, you know, because because he's 37 years old. But just to have the experience to, you know, people always talk about bicycle kicks and, and overheads and all the, you know, all the all the Hollywood stuff. But proper football is really about honing in on the basics, you know, passing and moving and, you know, a perfectly timed pass in the right place, putting it in the right place for the guy who's who's receiving the ball. You know, all of these things that, that seem mundane but are actually the, the nuts and bolts of top-class football. You know, in order to break a defence down, you know, the run has to be timed perfectly. The pass has to be played in the right place. It has to be at the right pace with the right weight on it. You know, if 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 John Barnes is getting it, then you want to put it on his left peg. You don't want to put it on his right, really. So there are, there are so many things that are about the nuts and bolts of the game that if it's done at the highest level, that's why it looks simple. That's why, that's why these guys make the game look simple because they're so... The skills and you've you've got ability and you you know half the games in, in in between your ears as well, you know to see the pass, you know to have the brains to figure out where to put it and all of these things that I was talking about. So to be able to do it at the speed, you know you have you have that much time to figure all that out. That little computer. That's why we talk about people having a football brain because the computer just works at a different level to your ordinary player. Somebody like Cruyff has figured things out before you're even starting to think about it. He already, yeah. He's already figured it out. You know, it's a, bit, it's a bit like snooker. You know, you always talk about snooker players. They're looking three shots ahead. People like Cruyff, people like Cruyff that's how they're thinking. It's not about just making that pass. They're thinking, well, Cruyff's brain's gone. If I pass that to him, he's figuring out what he's going to do already as well. He's thinking about where he's going next which is why he has to put it in the right place for him in order to do what he's already worked out next. So to watch these guys in action, the way they go about their business is 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 fantastic to watch, but also a great learning experience. Which is amazing to consider. I mean, you sort of sit here, obviously yourself, as I've said a few times, much ahead of this for me. I'm someone that likes football. That's all I am. But you consider it... <laughs> And you sort of think about it and you think, okay, that makes sense, right? So he's thinking, can't think who he was playing with, but, you know, he's thinking he's going to the end. He, I'm passing to him now. In my head, I'm like, right, trying to think that next step's hard. I'm not even considering what he's thinking and what that no. next step's thinking. <laughs> it's mental. It's, it's, I mean, I think the I think Beckham had said that 
um, the only thing Messi's really done into Miami is tell folk to run less, you know. And you watch Messi; he barely moves now. He just sort of walks around, and but right. he, he knows what's happening, and right. it's very interesting. Just that sort of mentality. Well, what is a great example when I let, when I went from me United to Liverpool. So the one thing they had to do, or the biggest thing they had to do with me, was to get me to stop running with the ball. Yeah. And it was dead simple to go, well, see, here's the thing. If you run with the ball from the edge of the box to the halfway line, it's going to take way longer for that ball to get from the edge of the box to the halfway line as it would be if you passed it from the edge of the box to somebody on the halfway line. You're like, oh, that's true. Just simple things. But I was encouraged to run with it because I, I like to go past people. I like to take people on. That's kind of typically Scottish, to be honest. You know, growing up, that's what we did. We, you, you know, people that I watched, the Willie Hendersons and Willie Johnstons and 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 Jimmy Johnston, and you know, we always had we always had wingers who ran with the ball. And although I was a fullback, I like to get forward, but I ran with it, and that was the first thing they had to do. Right, we need to stop running with it. As soon as you, you need to know. Before that, before you get that ball, you need to have an idea or know where you're going next, yes. or where that ball's gone, or who's getting it, and so, so that you get it, and then you give it, and mm -hmm. it takes a second. But if I start running with it, maybe it takes four or five seconds, and so the, for, for the opposition, that means things close down. So that was the first thing I had to learn when I went from me United to Liverpool. Get it out of your feet, pass it, let the ball do let the ball do all the running. I let the ball do all the work. Yes, you can you can then make your runs and whatever, but you keep the ball moving. That's the key. Have you got a shirt collection? I've I, I've got a couple left, but I've generally got rid of a lot most of them. We're giving them away and and things like that, yeah. The shirts have I've probably maybe got two or three left. That's about it. And is it two or three that there's a reason you've got them left, or is it just you've got them left? I've just got them. I've just got them left. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, like for instance, when I played with Scotland, I never, I never used to change shirts. Right. Because I wanted my shirt. I didn't want it. I didn't want it. I didn't want him to help his shirt. I wanted my <laughs> Scotland strip. You know, which obviously I would give to, to my family, you know, for me and my brothers or my sisters or friends or cousins or whatever. But yeah, no, I, I, I wasn't interested in changing shots. No, I get that. I get that. It's, yeah. it's, again, it's sort of that change of it's your life and career and this is your profession. To us, it's, oh, but man, just really such and such. It's, it's quite interesting <laughs> that, that difference. It's quite cool to see. But away. Yeah. Away from the pitch, uh, Stevie is still very much involved. When we restarted the recording, first thing I said was I could see snow outside the window. It's quite cold yeah. here in the minute, but not quite as cold as you are. You went out to to the States, which I think, you know, you look at now, we've mentioned Messi. I, I don't even think it's a case of arguably anymore. Probably the best player to ever play the game that we're aware of in, in recorded history, and people could dispute that fair enough. There's a lot of I'll dispute that. Would you dispute it? Perfect. Is it Stevie Nichol? Is that number one? Is it? Uh, I, I start. I, you know, we were talking earlier about playing in the eighties. Maradona 
the things that Maradona had to put up with, I mean, Maradona had to run around the field jumping about four or five foot in the air every two seconds to get out of the way of challenges and still produce what he did. You know, Messi doesn't... That That's the reason I put Maradona just ahead of Messi and maybe Pelly, but certainly Maradona, I think, is the best player I've ever played. Messi is great. Yeah, I think so, yeah. As I said, for that for that reason. You know, Pelly... Pelly played in, the, in, the, in the, the late 50s, early 60s, where other players weren't quite as professional as he was or the Brazilians were. Um, you know, he, he, so he never he never came up against the professionalism that Maradona did. And you could argue yeah. Maradona was less professional outside of football than the rest were. Aye, he's, he's, he's kind of the guy everybody loves because of that. The kind of yeah. half a bat but a kind of bad boy that's just brilliant. Yeah. But but as I said, the the time that he played, for him to do the things he did under the conditions that, that he was under, as far as as far as again, the way the game was refereed and what he could get away with. You know, he missed he missed he missed at least twelve months because he had a broken ankle because go a guy called Goa Kachia just just went after him. Now it just so Maradona was quick enough that generally he got out the road, but he couldn't get out the road on that one and, he, and broke his ankle. Yeah. So, yeah, but what Maradona, Messi's, when Messi played the game, you couldn't do things like that. The, it was, the physical side of the game wasn't the same as when Maradona played, which is why I think Maradona was better than Messi. And I, I don't think, Having said, it's not arguable. I don't think I would dispute what you're saying at all because I think you know, I, I, it seems a bit. I just like to argue. <laughs> no, but I think it's fair because you know I've I've been around and aware of football ever since Messi's been playing. Yeah, so that probably plays into it. And yeah. but I remember I think it was Gary Lineker when he was at Barcelona with Messi. Messi was out in the pits. We were just playing about before a game, and he kicked the ball as high as he could fourteen times in a row. And I remember Lineker saying. It's phenomenal, and I'm thinking I'm sitting as a kid. I was pretty good at keeping up he's around the world and stuff. And I'm like, how hard can it be? Ran outside and couldn't do three. And then I started looking at Maradona as a kid, that not him as a kid, me as a kid. And yeah, I to- yeah, he's he's in that discussion as well. And I totally see why he could be anyone's number one. And um, I guess the reason for the messy comment was, you know, he's in the MLS as is. Zlatan's been there, Beckham, whatever, and I know Pele, I think it was New York Cosmos, played in the States, but for the most part, it's it's became a a place that it's becoming more popular now, but you went sort of before it was popular. How did that come about? I just got, I got a phone call from, from my agent at the time. Uh, he spoke to a, a guy called John Kerr, who's who actually played in England, whose heritage is Scottish. Um, his dad played for New York Cosmos. Actually, played played against Pele. Um, oh. Well, he didn't play for the Cosmos. He played for other teams in the old NASL and played against Pele. Uh, but John Kerr was the the coach of a team called the Boston Bulldogs, and and I hadn't. I basically hadn't had got. I hadn't gotten a call from anybody else. To be honest with you, uh, you know, you think. You think that when you finish, the phone's going to ring, but it doesn't. It doesn't work that way. It's it's amazing, you know. It, football's probably sport in general. Once your time's done, you're done. 
What age are you, you know, at this point? Sorry, Stevie. Just what age I are you? was I was thirty-eight. Okay, yeah, yeah. I was thirty-eight when I finished. Um and as I said, I got a call from my agent saying that, you know, guy in America had called him, was interested in going because I could still play over there. Um and go there and be a player coach while he was a manager. So I was so I was like, well, spoke to Eleanor. We're like, well, why not? Why why not? So we decided to go for a year and 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 see what happened. And that was 20, 24, 25 years ago. We're still here. So I, I basically played, was was assistant coach. He got offered another job. I became the coach. Um, and then a couple of years later, um, I, I got the job in MLS with the New England Revolution. I was there for 10 years. Um, and as you do, you know, when you're the, when you're the manager, you're, we all know we're hired to be fired. Uh, and 10 years is, is a pretty good innings, to be honest. Very good, uh, yeah, um, and then after that, I got the bullet from that, and then I started. I when I was when I was the head coach at New England Revolution in MLS, I was doing some work at ESPN, which was about an hour and a half drive away from where I lived, and they had a program called Press Pass, um, which which I was on now and again, which was just just did it for a bit of fun, enjoyed it. And then when I got when I got the sack at, at uh, as a, the manager at New England, I started doing more work at ESPN, and eventually they offered me a, a full time contract, and that was in two thousand and eleven, and I've been there ever since. How I got a few questions about American. Do you say soccer when you're out there? Or do you say football? Um, depends what way the wind's blowing. Generally, say <laughs> football, but now and again, I'll say so. I mean, generally, we'll say football, and then you kind of go, well, but generally, football, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. It's, it's going to be a really weird question that I'm going to ask here. I'm sure if anyone's spoke <laughs> to you about going to this, but I find this quite interesting. You've went from being in, as we said earlier, one of the best football teams that we're aware of, one of the ones, you know, at that time when they were playing in that team. In a country that idolises football, nothing else matters. We play a bit of cricket, we watch a bit of tennis, but football's what matters. There's a bit of rugby as well. You've then went on to one of the, I think it's something like 23 countries on the planet that football isn't number one. And it's not even number two or three or four. It's probably about six. <laughs> um, what was that like? That must have been quite strange. You must have had a wee bit of, I'm, I'm not going to say anonymity to the point of complete anonymity, not at all. Yeah. Was that quite nice? It was nice. Is not the no. I've never been kind of particularly bothered about the whole, the whole being well known and all the rest of it thing. I've always, I've always, there's always been things that have happened or always coming home, but I've always been kept grounded. Mm-hmm. I'll give you. I'll give you. <laughs> I'll give you a couple of examples. The first one would be early on in my career at Liverpool. 
I'm going to say 83. Early rounds of the what's now the Champions League, European Cup. And we're playing in Austria. We played Austria Vienna in Austria. We beat them 1-0. And I scored the goal. And on the way back on the plane, you know, we used to always fly with Aer Lingus. And they always had these little bottles. Of, these little bottles. Of, we always had beer. But they always had a few of those little bottles of champagne. And of course, we would. There was only a limited amount of them, so we were, we everybody was getting fired then, basically. Yeah. And so one of the reporters on the way onto the plane, a guy called Matt Darcy, said to me, "He says, oh yeah, you're going to have a wee bottle of champagne to celebrate.'" I went, "Absolutely." Anyway, get home. It's about it's about three, four in the morning before I get in the house because we fly straight back after the game. Uh, Ellen lets me have a lie in. Uh, and, and then about half 12, one o'clock lunchtime, Ellen comes in. She's got the newspaper. She goes like that. And looks at me. I'm like, ah, what? She went, what's that? I'm like, what are you talking about? And the back of the newspaper had nickel getting high on champagne after blah, 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 right? <laughs> She's like, oh, who do you think you are? I mean, you talk about getting grounded. <laughs> you know, all over the back of the paper, it's got nickels are getting high on champagne. And 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 Ellen was like, what do you think? Who do you think you are? What's this? I mean, there was no chance of ever getting big-headed in my house. I can imagine. And there was no, and there was no chance of ever getting big-headed outside at, at Liverpool either. And, and so that's why I've always... Something's always happened to ground you. And then coming to America, as you say, people, it's way down the list of sports. Now, I'm the head coach of New England Revolution. Uh, by this stage, we've already been in two MLS Cup finals. Uh, we've won a, we won the, the US Open Cup. Um, and so a friend of mine asked me to coach his son for an hour. So I took him onto the fields in the town where I live, small town, take him on the fields, and I'm doing little drills here. And this guy comes out and said, uh, excuse me, said, uh, do you have permission to be here? And I'm like, no. Like, what do you mean? He goes, well, these are these are not public parks. He says, I really like the fact that you're, you're, you're working with a young child, but, you know, uh, you need permission and you know, you need a permit and you need this and you need that. So this guy had no idea that I was the head coach of New England Revolution, right? This guy was the director of coaching for Hopkinton Town, the town that I was living in. Oh, God. <laughs> and he had no idea who I was, that I was the head coach of New England Revolution and I played for Liverpool. And he basically was throwing me off the field because I didn't have a permit or... I didn't have permission. I mean, so, so there's always things that ground you. There's always things that ground you. So, yeah, it, it, it never bothered me. And certainly, and certainly the kids, particularly my son, actually, of all of us, enjoyed it the most. Because he would, when I was at Sheffield, not so much at Liverpool, but at Sheffield, he got a hard time because I played, played professional football. Okay. So probably, probably of all of us, the one that 
that liked it the most was was my son because he just became himself. He wasn't my son. He was just Michael Nichol. Yeah, yeah. And he actually he actually ended up playing. He was play, he actually played American football. Went yeah. to college, played American football at college. He was a defensive end and, and and all of that. So yeah, so for me and Eleanor and my daughter. I mean, my daughter. You could throw my daughter in the sea in the middle of the Atlantic, and she'd make friends with the sharks. I mean, so <laughs> so for her it was easy peasy. But for my son, it, it was he enjoyed it the most because he was just he was just Michael Michael. Could you? This is coming from someone that genuinely watches quite a lot of MLS football. I quite, I'm not someone like my girlfriend and I have been going out at time of release of this episode, probably four months now. Uh, she'll probably not have seen me watch a full game of football, but I'll sit down and watch, or not sit down, I'll probably be working and I'll have Chinese Super League and MLS on here and there. Don't really know why. Probably one because I can, it's not even a case of affording, it's just free, it's easy to access. Um, and I really quite enjoy the football. I quite enjoy it. I think it's quite a a, a, a fast-paced game of football that I really quite enjoy. But I don't actually know how it works. So when you talk MLS Cup and stuff, how how is the structure? How does it actually work in, in America? Um, so, the, so the league part of it, and you end up at the end of the season with somebody who... <laughs> <laughs> How do I explain it? I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this. So the so there's a trophy for the team that, that ends up at the top of the league of all the teams. But for some reason, it has never been looked upon as the be all and end all. Okay. It's kind of a it's kind of a well, there's a there's a trophy for doing well, but MLS Cup's more important. Which is actually, as it sounds, a cup competition. So depending on you know and and you know depending on it's always depending on how many teams were in MLS. You know MLS started with just ten teams, and so there would be six teams would get in, or or four teams to start where we'd get in the playoffs, and then the more that the more the the MLS grew and the more teams, more teams would get in the playoffs. And so basically it's a cup competition. But in America, the cup competition at the end of the season is more important than the league campaign. Although there is a trophy for the best team throughout the season who end up top of the league, it's not considered it's not considered the one to one. It is quite interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, like in Europe, I mean maybe some of the smaller countries know, but like your clubs like Barcelona, Real Madrid, Man City, Arsenal this season, Liverpool, whoever, Bayern Munich, some of them see their Bundesliga, La Liga, Premier League as bigger than a Champions League. Whereas, now, not everyone, but there is that perception somewhere. In the States, the sort of, you, you have that sort of playoff idea, don't you? And that's probably yeah. how you see the league somewhat. And then yeah. get playoffs amazing, and then that fight, yeah. No, that makes a bit of sense. Well, the reason, and the reason they do it is because it's kind of the culture in America, American sports that that's how it goes. You know, you you have a you have a system that that gets to a point where you have the teams that go now go into the the cup competition, and so in order to get people interested, they that's how they went about it. 
you know, so that it wasn't completely and totally alien to them. So they followed on from the other sports. And, I mean, I guess... the, the And to get owners involved as well, to get more owners, you know, again, as much as we don't like it, it's about money as well. Of course. So, yeah. for owner, so for owners to get playoff games is more money. So not only do you get your league campaign, but now now you get the playoff system where where the owners get they make more money at it. So it's a combination of all of these things. But but generally the reason it, it, the reason it, it's it is the way it is is because of all the other sports and in the very beginning to get people to understand it they took the model from other sports as well to make it easier for people to understand and get them involved in it. And it's it's not going to change. And actually, do you know, I really liked, <clears throat> I was in the States, I was in Indianapolis in, in well, November. And we had a couple of days, well, not a couple of days, probably a day in total to kill over the course. And we went to a Pacers basketball game and a Colts, uh, like American football game. And I actually loved much more than I enjoy a game of football here in the UK, I must say, uh, the sort of atmosphere. I absolutely loved it. And I was with a guy who's a dad uh, to, to two wee girls, and he said, this is much more what I'd rather take my kids than a game of football back home, which I found quite interesting. And I'm not saying that's strictly the case. It's just sort of the perception again, but I really liked the, the sort of way it was in the States. One one thing that, that sort of makes I always think about when I think of soccer in America is the women's game. When you think of the women's game sort of here, it's grown a bit, but I mean, let's be serious, it's still not something that's nearly what we talk about with the men's game, and it's it's getting bigger and has seen a massive jump with the last Euros, which is, is great to see. But when you think of women's football, certainly in my head, I think of Norwegian players and I think of American players. Um, having watched the American team at Hamden in 2012, <laughs> uh, which was quite cool, in the Olympics, um maybe that's why but why do you think the game is so much further ahead with the likes of well Megan Rapinoe's obviously been huge and, and sort of pushing that back in the states and maybe you're not actually not over that involved in this and folk like Morgan and oh god I could name off a few <laughs> sprung to mind but they can't at the minute for some reason um why do you think that is and is that quite clear when you're working in football I know you're more focused on the men's side and maybe a hundred percent but why do you think that is um I think you underestimate how big the, the football is at home, to be honest with you. Maybe, you know, I, do. Maybe I do. It's it's actually the US women, it's more about the national team, to be honest. Because the national team have been the best team for so long, I think worldwide that you know you know, it's not that long ago that the 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 women's teams here were struggling to get crowds. You know, the, yeah. I, I I went to a couple of games in Boston with the the Boston Breakers, and there was no crowd. Right. Yeah. So you know, I don't. I think. I think. I think you underestimate what's going on at home and overestimate the women's league here. There are teams that get big crowds, but there are teams also that that don't. And I think the general, in general, we think about the national team, and because the national team previously have been so good, then I think I think we, you, not that it's not big. It's how they explain how big it is. It is huge, and there is 
Yeah, I think I think you just I think at home you underestimate the women's game, and I think you overestimate what it is here yeah, in the US. Yeah. It's I think it's probably a little bit of a British thing, you know. It's like it's like a player who plays used to play in England who would go to Italy. All of a sudden, they become this figure. This yeah. this you know. Oh, how great is this? He's He's moving to another culture and he's doing this and doing that. You know, you kind of, you kind of over, <laughs> overestimate how great it is. You know, uh, or, or it's just, I think it's a British thing to be honest with you. That you that know, it's probably things on the outside always seem to be better than they are here. Yeah, and whereas, and this again, compare. I was only in the states for a week. I felt like the states were very much more. This is America, like what we do is good and what we do is big and what we do is whatever. And we're probably bad in the UK for not being as proud as I felt the States was. Right. Yeah. Um, Here, Stevie, I, I, I phoned you or I texted you or whatever when we were trying to rearrange this. And I said, it'll probably be another 10 minutes. I think we've probably done another hour here, to be honest. Um, All right, what time is it? <laughs> I don't know, but if you need to go, I've got one quick question for you. Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm actually. I've got. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to sort of. I'm trying to sort of tickets for Disney World. We're going with the grandkids at the end of the month, and we're having a shortcut. So yeah. Well, I need about five minutes, and we'll be good. I'll let you go get the tickets. Um, uh, the first question is: We do a thing in this podcast where the person who's been on before asks a question to the next person, and our person that was on last is the world record holder for the first person to ever go to every country twice, and. Uh, He's from Norway, and his question was, if you've been, uh, sorry, if you haven't been to Norway, why? And uh, if you have, what did you think? Now, I'm guessing with your football travels, you have. I have absolutely been to Norway, and I've been to Norway quite a lot of times. Um, not only do we go there with Liverpool pre-season, playing pre-season games, but for probably a three-year spell every summer, I went coaching in Oslo, coaching oh. kids. My, myself, uh, Ray, Ray Clements, um, Sammy Lee, a um, couple of other guys, uh, Mike Phelan from Man United. So three years in the trot, I went over to Oslo and spent two weeks uh, coaching. Um, and so, yeah, I know, I know Norway very well and it's a fantastic place. Great people, had a fantastic time. So, yeah. Absolutely, one of my favourite places to go, Norway. Ever, ever experienced rural Norway, or just Oslo? Uh, just, just Oslo mainly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, going out on the, going out on the boat and going around the fields and having a few beers and yeah, yeah fantastic, fantastic. And by the very nature of the fact that that was a question from the previous guest, we were going to randomly throw a question to you of the next. Uh, guest who I believe you might know even better than I do is one of the presenters um, Ricky Forbes on uh, Tornado Hunters which is massive in the States but you might not have seen it um, if, if you <laughs> you know, no, well, neither have I in fairness no. I just saw a thing on TikTok and I was like I've got this guy on but um, right. if you just had to have a random question for anyone about anything what would it be? <laughs> So, so it's an easy question. Well, I mean, you can make it as difficult why, or as easy as one. Why would you think that going towards a tornado 
is a good idea. <laughs> I'm what quite certain I'm going to ask that as well. Right, okay, good one. What would possess you to think, you know what, there's a tornado coming. I want to see what it's like right in the middle of it. So let's go and see. What would possess you to to do that? And what did your mum say when you told her you were going to do that? You know, what, I, what would your mum say? I better put that question in. Uh, um, yeah, I better put that one in. No, here, Stevie, I do appreciate it. <laughs> this episode's probably going to be knocking in two hours in total. Um, I do appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man, so thank you. All for right, anyway. um, no Hope you've been quite enjoyed chatting to myself and Ed earlier on as well. Um, so thank you for that. For those of you listening... No that's been Stevie Nicol, ex well not ex European Cup winner now working out with ESPN uh, documenting soccer out there, um and then now the next episode soccer soccer soccer, <laughs> soccer. Uh, <laughs> next episode we have number one seven one with Laura Audrey is one of the other people on the Nuffield cohort we'll see you then for that episode and uh, we shall um, yeah we'll see you for number one seven one see you then. <laughs>